Hey there, it's Jim Stengel, host of the CMO Podcast. We're all marketers here, so let's be real for a sec. We all know that your website shouldn't be a static asset. It should be a dynamic part of your strategy to build your brand and drive conversions. That's Marketing 101. But 54% of marketing leaders say web updates take too long. That's over half of you listening right now. And that's where Webflow comes in. Their visual-first platform allows you to build, launch, and optimize web pages fast. That means you can set ambitious marketing goals and your site can rise to that challenge. Learn why teams like Dropbox, IDEO, and Orange Theory all trust Webflow to achieve their most ambitious goals today at webflow.com. What's the first brand you remember making an impact on you as a young girl? So I think about The Little Mermaid came out when I was four. And I remember very distinctly wanting this water bottle slash thermos kind of thing from the Disney store. I remember it so clearly. And that's why Disney, I think, as an organization has so much impact because I think the power of nostalgia and the way they interact on an emotive level with consumers from a very young age and all the way up, I think it's hugely powerful. Hi, I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it and the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. My guest today on the CMO podcast is Shira Foyer, the chief marketing officer of Trini London, the seven-year-old, digital-first, global beauty brand founded by Trini Woodall. Trini Woodall has been an influencer and personality in the fashion and beauty scene since starting a Daily Telegraph ready-to-wear column in the 1990s with Susanna Constantine. The column morphed into a hugely popular BBC series, What Not to Wear. Trini London has been a runaway success over these past seven years, and we'll talk a lot about that. My guest Shira has been with Trini since 2019 when she joined as CMO. Shira is Canadian, educated at McGill University, but always wanted to build her career in London, and we will also talk about that. Shira began her career in Canada in banking, discovered quickly it was really not for her, and eventually made her way to Burberry, which was a seminal experience for her. This is my cheery holiday conversation with the CMO who wants to travel to 100 countries before she is 50. Here's Shira. Welcome to the CMO Podcast, Shira, and happy holidays. How is the season looking so far for Trinity London? It is looking excellent. Yeah, going really well so far. Excellent, excellent. So you're based in London where the company is based. Yep. What do you like best about London in the holiday season? What I like best about London in general is that you can't get bored in London. That is what I've always loved, regardless of the time of year. I've been here for over 15 years now. So yeah, it's a wonderful city. I was there last holiday season and just loved walking around. Exactly. Yeah, it's great. The lighting, the shop windows, the street markets, so much fun. Yeah, can't go wrong. So this is a bit of a softball question as we get started. I have a lot of women in my life, nieces, daughter, wife. So do you have any gift ideas for the women in my life this holiday season? 
Oh, well, there's just so many. I would recommend taking a look uh, at our Match to Me, which for either makeup or skincare helps you really understand what is the best products for every individual. Personalization is really important to us. So I, I would never dare give a generic recommendation, but I would definitely take a look because uh, yeah, you can get great recommendations, whether it's our gift sets or individual products based on each person's skin, hair and eye for makeup or particular skin type. So lots for you to discover. So I want to start this conversation with a talk about your career first. And I've seen you say that you always wanted to get to London for your career. So why was it important for you to build your life and your career in London? You're Canadian, but you really wanted to get to London. Yeah, so I actually came uh, before Burberry. What, what brought me over was I started my career as a banker, which was horrendous and not something I would recommend to my worst enemy. However, I had traveled to London and I had loved it and I wanted to, to come over here. And back then, pre-Brexit, all you needed was one European grandparent, which unfortunately I did not have because all of my great-grandparents moved to, to Canada. Mm -hmm. So I had come here for a summer in university and clawed my way into an internship and asked the HR person, this was GE Commercial Finance, I asked her for advice on, on how I could get over here. And she said, you need to get a job in Canada that will sponsor you and move you over. So that was part of the reason why I took a job in banking, which was I was on the trading floor of a bank, turned out during exactly when the credit crunch was, couldn't have timed it better. And like I said, it was it was truly terrible, but it did bring me over here, which was what I was going for. Um, so that was a good thing. But yeah, I just loved the city and I wanted to be here. And here I am still. Why did you hate banking so much? Was it the people, the team, the categories, the, the incentives, everything? It was everything. I mean, it wasn't a very nice place to be as a 22-year-old woman on the trading mm. floor of a bank. You know, this is pre-Me Too. It was all very Wolf of Wall Street, yeah. glorified sexism amongst many other problems. I wasn't interested. I did. I just, I mean, I took it because it was the highest paying job that was being offered out of university, which is, I mean, you know, I learned young that money isn't everything, which is a, mm -hmm. an important lesson to learn. Yep. I no, they were not very nice to anyone. <laughs> and so, yeah, not a great gig. Well, it had sort of a happy ending. You landed at Burberry, right? After a few agencies. So I came out of banking, hired the credit crunch, and I knew I wanted to work in marketing, which is what I had studied and what I wanted to do in the first place. Didn't really know what that meant, practically speaking. Went on monster.com, which hopefully you remember, yeah. uh, typed, in, typed in marketing, and the only people hiring were digital agencies at the time because digital was deemed to be cheap at a time when nobody had any money. Got in through agencies, worked in, in agencies the first few years of my marketing career, which I think is a great start for mm -hmm. anybody because you get a wide breadth in terms of industry you can work across in, in different areas. So that was really good. And it was only after doing that for a few years when, when I was approached by Burberry, who were at the time the sort of darling of the digital world. And I didn't think I was going to do it. I, I still really liked agencies, but you kind of didn't say no to a meeting with Burberry. So I had a meeting with them and walked out thinking like, that was great, but I still you know like my job and found myself applying all these things we had talked about in this job interview to my clients when I was at my agency. And so I realized I had that I, I could learn a lot from this brilliant team. You know, and looking back, it seems like it should have been a very obvious decision. But anyway, it was I'm glad I made this decision. And, and Burberry was fantastic. Well, I've heard you say you've learned everything you know about brand building at Burberry. Yes. So I'd like to go there with you. What exactly 
do you mean by that? And why was this so fundamental for you? So Burberry was undergoing a transformation or working on undergoing transformation where they really, brand had kind of gone astray a bit and they were really trying to position themselves as a serious luxury brand. And this was at a time when the luxury sector was not embracing digital. They still, you had mm-hmm. designers saying, I will never have a website. My customer does not shop on the internet. That was that was still happening, even though this was not that long yeah. ago. So yeah. they were just behind. Whereas Burberry was an industry leader. Angela Ahrens, who was the CEO at the time, she had teenage kids. And I think that had a, a really big influence on the fact that she understood the power of digital media. So... We were able to do a lot that I think other brands later did a lot of, but at that time, a lot of luxury brands weren't doing. So we were taught, you know, an asset in a tweet had to look good as a spread in Vogue. And that was just not the done thing at the time. Like nobody did that. That's not social media was viewed as as this very scrappy thing. And I think there's now, I think there's a place for both. But the way they taught us about brands consistency, recognizability, and and making sure that your brand is really ownable and that people recognize you uniquely. That's something that has stayed with me ever since. And I think that nothing was ever done as like a token thing at Burberry. It was everything had purpose and had value. And so I think I was very lucky to be there in the time I was there. I think it was a really magical time for the business where they, it was just a brilliant team doing really exciting things. And, and I'm glad I got to be a part of it. You worked for Angela, who you mentioned, who I think is one of the great leaders of all time. She, of course, went on to Apple after that. I've heard her speak a number of times in person. It, she's just so warm and inspiring and smart and everything you want in a leader. What did you learn about leadership from Angela? I think that what Angela did so well that is not valued enough is she she stayed the course with with her views on digital and how we should use digital. And and even when it wasn't popular and it wasn't, like it might not have been obvious from the very beginning, the power of, of what we were doing on these channels, but she stayed steady with it. And she didn't let all these other people around her who might've been saying like, do other things, change your mind. You know, like I think there's a temptation for leaders to, to change course too often. And I think what Angela did was she believed in this vision that she had and she stuck with it. And I have a huge amount of respect for that. I've taken a lot from that. Shira, you're now working for one of the great entrepreneurs of all time, Trini Woodall. What is it about Trini herself that attracted you to her and to this company when it was so very young and just, I don't know, a few 20 or 30 employees? Trini is a force of nature. I think most people who know her would agree She had a vision for what she wanted the business to be, and she was very passionate about the products, and she was very passionate about building a brand that had meaning, and that was more than just products. And I think that we live in an era with venture-backed startups just, you know, going after growth for the sake of growth and where brand is often retrofitted later. And that was not the case here. You know, Trini wanted something that had real meaning for our audience. And that was a part of it from day one. I joined a year and a bit in, but it was something that she had established early. And she really has a way of connecting with the audience that was really powerful. And so obviously as a marketer, that that meant a lot to be able to have not just a founder, but the talent who can connect with people in that way. was huge. How are you a different leader now 
than you were when you joined five years ago? I think that I have learned that the power of adaptability, which I think I had before, but I don't think it had been tested maybe as much. I've worked in lots of different industries and I've adapted in that sense, but working in a high growth startup that has has really had rocket ship growth, it's been amazing. Going through those stages over the course of going on five years, I think that you just you you become stronger. You know, you're you're not just needing to adapt yourself, but you're needing to coach and nurture a team that needs to adapt too. So many of my team members who were fantastic from beginning the from the beginning, but maybe inexperienced, and now they're, in my opinion, the best in the business. I've seen them grow, I've seen them adapt, and I've tried as best I can to hold their hand through that change. So I think going through an experience of a startup that's really successful has been amazing because so many startups don't get that opportunity. And so being able to be there through all these different stages of growth in a short space of time has been really meaningful for me. If I had your team on this on this interview and they were around a big table and I was having a focus group with them, what would they say about you as a leader? What kind of boss are you? Well, that's a scary question, but I would hope, I would hope they would say that I know my stuff and I have high expectations and I have helped drive them to do some of the best work of their careers. That's what I would hope. Mm -hmm. I think I have a brilliant team and I I think that they've learned a lot over the years and, and I hope that they've seen how much I care about their development and them growing with the business. I hope that's what We've all been there. You spend millions of dollars each year driving traffic to your company's website, and then the results come in and they're just not what you hoped. On top of that, 81% of marketing leaders say website ownership is a challenge. So what do you do? Well, you switch to Webflow. Let me tell you why. Webflow's visual-first platform empowers your team to own your company's most valuable dynamic marketing asset, your website. From launching a new site to optimizing for SEO and conversions, Webflow gives you the tools you need to drive business growth fast. Unlock your website's full potential when you build, manage, and host with Webflow. Get started today at webflow.com. You've been CMO at this company, as you, as you said, almost five years, and you've looked over a period of remarkable growth with your team. You know, the company was about, I don't know, 20 or 30 people when you joined. It's now 225 plus. Your team alone is like 50. Your valuation's growing. Your revenue's growing. So if you were to write a book about this remarkable period in your life and you wrote it with Trini, what would some of those chapters be to give us insight on what has been driving this remarkable growth story in a category which is not easy, right? There's a lot of established brands, a lot of new brands, a lot of trends, a lot of ways to distribute and communicate. So what would some of those chapters be? I think one for sure would be about impactful entertainment, which has been a core element of our marketing strategy. So we really believe that people don't want to be sold to all the time. I certainly as a consumer don't want to be sold to all the time. And being able to create content that is genuinely entertaining for the viewer, but also drives impact in one way or another, that's been fundamental to what we've what we've done. And, and Trini is an entertainer, right? She knows how to do that. So having access to somebody who can do that has been huge. 
it's not just all about quality either. It's about quantity too, because it's, we're competing with not just other brands, but social media is the heart of what we do. So we're competing with everyone's friends and their family, right? So we're, we've been creating high quality content at pace. So I think a lot of our success is down to the phenomenal team that we have that's been able to continuously every single day, never get tired and keep producing content that our audience engages with and loves and comes back for as much as they come back for the product. So we often say we're as much a content production house as we are a beauty brand, because that has been such an important element to us. Beyond that, it's really been about creating products that people will also come back for and products that work for our audience. We target a 35 plus year old woman, generally speaking. This is an audience that is traditionally very much ignored by the industry. And I don't think anybody set out to target this audience. It was a discovery that our products were resonating with this audience. They resonate with the wider audience too. We have lots of 20-year-old customers, but lots of brands talk to 20-year-old customers. So it's been thinking about how can we connect with that audience that not as many brands are approaching, which has been huge for us. And getting to know this audience and how much it means to her that actually we're paying attention to her, that that's really valuable. So you know, we've had people say things to us like, it's amazing to see a model whose eyelids look like mine. Because an 18-year-old's eyelids don't look like a 50-year-old's eyelids, you know, and it's that very specific attention to detail in terms of our audience and creating products that appeal to them and that work with their skin. That's been a really big part of what we've done. What would the title of the book be? Oh, that's such a hard question. It would be, this is terrible because it, it's a saying we use that I still, it's not my favorite, but it is the essence of who we are, which is be your best. Because we really focus on trying to get our audience to feel like the best version of themselves, who they are today. That would be my working title. And then I would think a little bit longer to give you something better. I've heard you and I've heard Trini on YouTube talk about your tribe, right? The community. And you've talked about that already. And it's a big one. And you've done that extremely well, right? You've kept people there and you've expanded. So what could every brand, obviously, every great brand once has a community of some sorts, some more organized than others. But I think the essence of a great brand is a community. And what could others learn from you and your team in building that, keeping your community together while you expand the circle? So I think that what's really important is to distinguish the difference between community and audience, because I think those are used inter interchangeably when they shouldn't be. So mm -hmm. we look at it as two different things. We have our community, which we call the Trini Tribe, and they are our biggest advocates. They live primarily in Facebook groups where they talk to each other, and then they meet up in real life. And we've seen again and again, true friendships that have been created. And the reason that's important is... Fundamentally, we don't believe that a community is a one-to-many conversation. It's a many-to-many -many conversation. It's people who are actually talking to each other. So our Trini tribe is you know, the best gift any brand could wish for because they are our true advocates and they aren't shy about sharing their opinions, good and bad. But it means that if they have the freedom to say when they don't like something, people have a trust that when they say they do like something, they can believe it. Our audience is a wider group and there's overlap, but our audience is the audience that's 
interacting, watching our content and maybe interacting with it, maybe not. You know, we know the 1990 rule, is that it? 1990, where, you know, most people will just consume and they won't interact. Mm -hmm. And that has huge value too, but it's different. And so we know that our community has been phenomenal because they are so close to our brand in a way that our audience can appreciate, but it's still not the same. So for any brand out there, I think distinguishing between those two things, who are your true, core, vocal, most engaged advocates, and who's your wider audience who also presents an incredible opportunity, but they need to be treated a little bit differently because the way you talk to them is a little bit different and the way they talk to each other is incredibly different. I would say that's that's critical is understanding that distinction. How does that affect how you and your team work? I mean, do you sort of let the tribe do what they do and you're there when they ask and the audience you're a bit more proactive with? Generally speaking, yes, that's correct. What I would say is we run our global Trini tribe channel. Mm-hmm. That group is run by the team. And then all of our regional ones, of which there are many, they're all run by ambassadors who we have close relationships with, but it's for them. It's their tribes and we're there when they want us and we're there to answer questions, but it's very much proactively their thing. With our wider audience, it is definitely us creating content, publishing content, but our community team is still interacting with anybody who interacts with us. We respond to every single comment. So it's still an interaction, but it's slightly different because it's just, it's more about us and the individual in, in both cases, but in the case of our community, our ambassadors are the ones who really drive most of the engagement in the, in the regional communities. And that's really important. And we see faster growth in those regional communities because people, when it's really a real community, they want to interact with people who are near them and people who they can actually meet in real life. And we see that happening all the time. So slightly different dynamic, but both of them incredibly important. Well, we have not met yet in real time. Maybe we will someday, but I feel like I've gotten to know you by looking at a lot of content that you've created about your job, your role, your company, your career. And I've discovered that you have some very strong principles. And I want to talk about a few of those principles today because I think they're really good. And I think others can learn a lot from them. And the first one, and we've already referred to this, you believe great products are the basis for everything and always, always need to be a top priority. So I'd like you to talk about how that impacts how you spend your time as CMO, the people you meet with, the questions you ask, the teams you work with. Great question. Yeah, I, I definitely do believe that. And I worked for very big established businesses mm-hmm. like we're in the Walt Disney Company, where it's very easy to take that for granted. And when you're coming into an earlier stage business, it's not always the default. In terms of how we work with the teams, the marketing team and the new product development team are working very, very closely together every single day because it's very important that we understand what's being worked on. They understand how our audience is going to respond to it, what people are asking for, how they've responded to different launches in the past. And that's a continuous two-way conversation all the time because it needs to be. So, you know, when, when you're at this stage, business can't really just take risks and and in terms of guessing you want your your decisions to be informed and that doesn't mean that every product we produce is off the back of somebody asking for it not at all we have a really strong product development team that is able to understand true innovation in our industry and and create things that people never would have thought to ask for but 
the way that we interact together, we can have ideas on how our audience will respond. So it's a continuous conversation that's that's always always on. Second principle, and there are five, by the way, just so you know where we're going. Second principle is you believe it is critical to take inspiration from everywhere because if you don't, you will start to get, quote, samey. <laughs> yeah. So how do you how do you role model that for your team? Well, I the thing that comes to mind immediately when I joined the business, so we had Slack, but it was hardly being used. Mm-hmm. And and one of the Slack channels I created probably my first day was called Marketing Examples. And it was just about sharing examples from lots of different brands. And the default that people started using for was they were sharing examples from beauty. And what I very quickly really wanted to try and get them to understand was that's great. It has value, but we're going to be more creative and more interesting if we take our inspiration from the automotive industry or the insurance industry or, or really random non-marketing related stuff. So we, you know, because entertainment is very important to us, we look at entertainment and movies and TV. We're looking at everything because we find that, you know, in the beauty industry, it can get really samey sometimes. And what has been very important for us is that we've been differentiated by doing things that are different from what everybody else is doing. So that is something that I think the team has has gotten very best in class at. I think that what they've done looking at inspiration from all over the place has resulted in content that is truly creative, truly disruptive, and really gets covered. I worked in beauty many years ago at P&G when we purchased CoverGirl and Max Factor, and I was one of the early P&G people sent there. And it was really hard to get the team to pull their heads out of beauty and then even respect people coming in from outside beauty. So how did you do that? It's because I think it's a bit of a cultural thing. Well, I mean, the biggest thing was I, I built a team where most people didn't come from Got beauty. It. Okay. That was very intentional. Yeah, And that's not to say in the wider business, we do have some brilliant people across the business who come from beauty. And even in, in my team as well, there's a few, but we wanted to be great marketers selling great products that reach a wide audience. Mm-hmm. And in order to do that, in order to have diversity of thought, it was very important to not just hire from beauty, but to think of this as just a fast growing business where we wanted to reach our audience primarily through digital channels. So there weren't a ton of beauty brands, especially based in the UK, where I would look at people and think, yeah, you're exactly what we need. More often, those people would come from different industries and they could bring a different point of view. And that added a huge amount of value for us. What were some of the early marketing examples on that Slack channel that resonated with your team, if you can remember back then? Oh, wow. That's a very hard question because we're sharing hundreds of examples in there all the time. I mean, I I don't remember the early ones, but certainly I think something that was game changing for us was a few years ago, talking to the team about inspiration from film. And so we created it very quickly and we said, okay, so if we were going to create something based on a holiday moment from a film, you know, what would that look like? And the first answer I got from a team member was we should recreate the dance from Love Actually that Hugh Grant does. And Trini should be Hugh Grant. And of course, Trini's very up for anything. So she did it. And we have, because we have this brilliant in-house production team, we created that video for like, 
I think maybe it cost us 500 pounds because we had one of the locations we had to rent. So that was one of our more expensive pieces of digital content. But in my team, one of my team members is a professional, was a professional dancer in the West End. So she was able to choreograph it. We had, you know, we have all these different people from different backgrounds. So we created this piece of content and we published it on Christmas Day that year. And everyone said, you know, we won the internet that day. It was great. But since then, that was our starting point. And then we've done similar things for When Harry Met Sally and uh, Sound of Music. And we've done it for different things. But it was a way of taking our inspiration from something totally different. And the team was so energized doing it because it was just a really fun thing for everybody to do. And I think it shows in the content. Um, everybody should take a look on YouTube and, and watch these videos. You'll see there, you know, they cost us next to nothing to make, but they have so much resonance and value for us. So it's really thinking about what content not only energizes our audience, but actually our team, because it's important both ways. That's a key point you're making sure. I mean, if your team, in, in my experience, if the team's having fun, energized, enjoying what they're creating, others are going to enjoy it. Exactly. And it's going to build the brand. So I love the story. It's an important principle. Great story, by the way. It's, I mean, I take a look at the content. Hopefully you love it as much as we do. Yeah, for sure. What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMOs succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. So the third principle, and related to what we're talking about now, both you and Trini believe that it is critical to, and I'm quoting again, stick to your own lane. So could you say a bit more what you mean by that and how, and maybe more importantly, how you operationalize that in how the company runs? Because obviously... You're in an innovative space. People have ideas every day. So how do you balance stick to your own lane while being open to those ideas that, that can take you to the next phase? That's a quote from Trini. I think what she meant by that was doubling down on your areas of expertise and really knowing what you're good at, knowing where you need help. I think as a business, we historically have been very open to different ideas coming from all over the place. But it's been really about how can we develop our expertise in what we're good at? How can we focus and prioritize and not try and do 10 million different things at once? And that's been important because the temptation in any startup is to just do everything. And you can't, you need to prioritize. So I think what she meant by that was figure out what people are responding to, double down on that, Think about how you can get better and better, but still definitely remain open to mm -hmm. ideas from different places. I think that's been that's been very important for us. Next principle, I love this one. You believe that you are most that you personally are most creative in a new environment, but most productive at home. So how do you balance the two of those? This was something that I was and am passionate about. That was that was particularly relating to hybrid working. Yeah. And I stand by it. I think that different environments have different purposes. And I think that being able as an organization to figure out how and where people work their best, at the same time, understanding the needs of the business and how you can make both sides work together is really important. So for us, 
having time to be able to work at home where it makes sense and having time to be together in the office is really important. What I hate is the idea of commuting into an office to sit alone in a room Mm -hmm. where you're on calls all day. I think it's not just pointless, but actually very detrimental. And the negative impact doing that has on employee morale is, is really bad. Like I would so much rather someone have, you know, the extra two hours in their day to exercise or to sleep or to do something that they love because I think that it makes them a better employee. So being able to do both and being able to understand that the way you as an individual interact with people might be different than the way somebody else does and trying to get the best of all worlds in any way that you can is, is really important. And understanding part of it's an age thing too for people who grew up on screens they interact differently on a screen than somebody who didn't grow up on screen so it's being open and adaptable and trying to find solutions that work for as many people as possible and that's not easy but i think it's important i've heard you say your productivity doubled kind of after covid that was the team yeah so when we when we went into lockdown I, like everyone, I think, was like, I don't know how my team's going to handle this. I don't know what this is going to look like. Genuinely, the team's productivity doubled. The amount of high quality output that we were able to produce, it was huge because we also were set up going into lockdown to be able to produce content in a scrappy way. We were not the kind of business that needed everything to be slick and overproduced. In fact, when we had tried to do things like that, it flopped because that's not what our audience wanted and it didn't get any cut through. So we were primed actually to go into lockdown where people were able to work together. Our communication across the team and the business was really, really good. And also, of course, we had Trini who could produce content for us that the team could then edit and, and create. We were in a really good position. But yes, the team was was fantastic working from home. I, and I think they really, to me, proved that People don't need to be watched all the time yeah. in order to do a good job. They need to feel motivated. That's a big number, doubling. What What do you think drove that? I mean, there's the obvious stuff, right? They're not commuting. Is there something else? Was it sort of more quiet time or was it more deliberate interaction? What, if you had to boil it down to what really drove the doubling of productivity, what was it? I think it was the ability to focus. I think that being able to work from home, you can focus. And it doesn't mean, you know, we still... I mentioned Slack before, and we're on Slack all day, every day, and we're interacting, and we have lots of meetings and lots of calls, but you still can just sit and focus in a way at home that if you're surrounded by those people, it can be harder. And again, it depends on the individual, but for us, I think that's that's what did it. I want to go back to being creative in a new environment. What do you do for yourself to make that happen? I mean, do you go to different places to experience things? Do you go out and visit companies you admire? Do you go put yourself down in a cafe or a studio or something that, that you find inspiring? Yeah. I mean, all of the above. I think that being able to be in different environments and also making sure to take the time to do things like go to the theater and museums and different environments that will inspire you, whether it's individually or as a team. So taking the team to a museum and walking through and talking about stuff and things that are completely unrelated to our industry, but being able to spark lots of ideas, that's been really, really important to us. And it can feel like a distraction sometimes, but I really believe in the importance of doing it. And sometimes when you're really, really busy with loads of work, it's very hard to get up from your desk and be like, no, let's go to a gallery, right? But actually the output that you're gonna create after is gonna be better. 
and it's worth it. And I think that it can be hard to pull yourself away, but usually after we do things like that, people can see the value. I went to a concert last night, a symphonic organ concert. I've never been to one of those in my entire life. And it was this remarkable Canadian woman actually playing it. What a what an unbelievable talent. And it was this very rare organ that was built in the 20s. There were like 4,500 4, pipes in this big kind of vaulted room. So it was just trippy. I mean, just sitting there for like two hours and experiencing these sounds and this vibration and this movement and this remarkable woman who is an athlete, an athlete really, to be able to yeah. play that uh, and to really bring a symphony to life through a pipe organ. I mean, it was so anyway, it's an endorsement of what you're saying. I mean, it was a very, just a very, very disruptive experience. Yeah. And I think it sort of opens your brain up in a way that reading marketing trade press simply does not. They're both important. Yes. One for productivity, one for creativity, right? Yeah, sure. So this is the last principle. And, and I've heard you talk about authenticity and you say it's a word Trini doesn't like, but it's important to you. Yeah. And maybe it's your most important principle. I don't know. How does that shape you, this value you put on authenticity, shape you as a leader, as a CMO, how you approach things in your life? I think it's huge. And I, I should clarify, I think Trini is easily the most authentic person I've ever met. She just doesn't like the word because she thinks it's a bit yeah. cringy and a bit like a marketing buzzword. But, you know, I think that she brings her genuine, authentic self into work and into the content that she produces. And I think that it sets a really good example in the business. And for me, it just, I think that we can be really proud of the work that we're all doing because we authentically believe in it, right? And we are being ourselves when we're pushing to do the things that we're doing. And, you know, it makes it a lot easier to, to sleep at night when you feel like you can really stand behind the work that you do. So yes, Trini doesn't like the word, but she does live it. Well, we're done with the principles. And that was, that was really, really, really fun. One question about your job. You're, you're five years, you come in as CMO, you're still CMO. Most tenures are a lot shorter than yours. What has changed about, we've talked about how you've changed as a leader, but what's changed about your job in five years? What do you do now that you didn't do five years ago? I have learned to let go a little bit more, a little bit being the key phrase there. Um, I still like to be very close to the work, but as the team has gotten much bigger, I definitely trust them a lot because in the beginning, I can, I can honestly say the trust wasn't there yet because they were really young, really inexperienced, and I, I had a job to do to help give them a lot of direction. And now over that time, because so many of, we, I had a team of a few people when I joined, but they were, they were really junior. They were all assistants or interns. To see them now still with the business, majority of them, absolutely thriving, absolutely best in class. It's incredible. And I fully, fully trust that I can just let go with, with them. They know what they're doing. And I still like to be involved. I'm still passionate about what we're doing. But being able to see the team evolve and how not just the marketing team, but the whole company, how the whole company has grown, it's a big shift and a big evolution. And the way that we work has changed. There is definitely a lot more process that, than there used to be. And it's important and it's needed and it's figuring out how can we continue to produce at pace without it being 
chaos. You know, mm-hmm. it's been a shift for all of us who have who have been there all along, and it's been exciting though because you know, to one of our team members, she was the the first employee hired. She was she was an intern at the time, and seeing how she has grown and changed is, I think, really inspiring. So for me as a leader, being able to see how the business has changed, our relationship with the customer has changed, but also, especially more than anything, the team's growth and development. That's been really powerful. What's your secret to retaining these people? They're obviously young, ambitious, smart, and probably recruited heavily. I think that it's the same thing that I think makes people good marketers, which is knowing your audience and understanding your audience motivation. And I think the same thing applies to a team. And it's really understanding who the individuals are, what makes them tick, what motivates them every day, where they want to be going in their careers. You know, are they the kind of person who wants to be a pure expert in what they do? Are they a person who craves change a lot and wants to be able to do different things? You know, being able to encourage movement within the business where where possible, all of that is really important. I think that in startups, often you get some individuals who come from a very entrepreneurial background, but what that means is they haven't grown up in companies where they've had a boss, a peer, a direct report. And so having been through that in big corporates, in agencies, in startups, I've been in all of those positions. And I think that understanding the impact different actions have on individuals and their motivation and making sure they feel excited to work, to come to work every day, I think that matters a lot. So I think a lot of mind share goes into that, into thinking about how can this individual, how how can they thrive here and how can we make sure over a long time frame, they are able to continue to thrive. Let's move into the creative brief. First question, what's the first brand you remember making an impact on you as a young girl? It's going to be a cheesy answer because it is my former employee, which is Disney. So I think about The Little Mermaid, you know, when I was four. And I remember very distinctly wanting this water bottle slash thermos kind of thing from the Disney store. I remember it so clearly, just wanted it so badly because I love that movie. And that's why Disney, I think, as an organization has so much impact because I think the power of nostalgia and the way they interact on an emotive level with consumers from a very young age and all the way up, I think it's hugely powerful. So yes, it would have to be Disney. Do you still go to Disney movies or stream Disney series? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. And big fan of the parks. I think, you know, I wasn't one of these, some people who work at Disney are obsessed in a in kind of a weird way. I know a few of them. Yeah. I wasn't one of those, but I definitely appreciate them. And now having worked there, I appreciate them more than ever because the machine that is the Walt Disney Company is absolutely unparalleled in terms of how that company runs. So it's it's a pretty incredible thing. You want to visit 100 countries before you were 50 and you were about two thirds of the way there, I think. Yeah. What's been your most memorable trip to date? Oh, wow. That's such a hard question. I think India was really powerful. That was probably the most meaningful trip that I did. I just a few weeks ago was in China for the first time. I I didn't know what to expect. And it was, I really, really liked it. I didn't think I would, but I did. I love to travel more than anything. And I've been to some really amazing places around the world. So yeah, that's probably the hardest question for me. But yeah, I want to go everywhere. So I just before this call was booking a sailing trip on the Croatian coast after the Cannes Festival this year. So is that a good idea? Yes, absolutely. I went to Croatia 
in 2007 before it was sort of on the brink yeah. before it became as popular as it is now. And I knew that at the time, but it was it was beautiful then. And I'm sure it's just as amazing now. What country are you most looking forward to visiting in the future? That I've not been to. I really want to travel around the South Pacific. And that's that's one that's been saved because it's very far away in terms of all the countries around there. I also really want to go to South Korea. I've never been there. Hmm. A lot of countries that I've been to, I want to go back to. I mean, there's there's so many. Yeah, South Pacific, though, that's been the one that's that's been because there's a bunch of countries yeah. in one area that I haven't been to that look incredibly beautiful. That's, that's what I'm looking forward to. My Google Photos sent me an alert today that uh, it's the 10-year anniversary of when I was in New Zealand, so it brought back a lot of those memories. New Zealand is incredible. Yeah. You seek inspiration from everywhere. So would you talk about what people or brands or movies or music, who's inspiring you right now? I get inspired by everything I see. I went to the theater in London last week at the National Theater, and that was incredible. I love when I take the tube in London. I look at all the ads all the time, and I like analyze them as I'm mm-hmm. waiting for for the tube. And that's, you know, so that's a lot of startups, but also a lot of established brands there too. In terms of entertainment, obviously with the with the writer's strike and the actor's strike, there hasn't been as much new stuff coming out. So trying to discover what if there's anything new out there, I just started watching a show called The Curse which is really weird. Mm. I'm not, I don't know if I like it or not, but it's just, you know, just watching weird stuff and, and it just sparks ideas in lots of different ways. There are, there are ideas that come from everywhere. I mean, speaking of this, you know, at work, we have Slack channels dedicated to discussing shows, like specific shows. So there's one for the White Lotus. There was one for Succession. Of course. And, and we are very passionate about these, these conversations, but there are always just little elements that come out of everything that can inspire ideas. So it really, truly comes from from everywhere. Who has been the most inspiring person in your life? I don't think I could pick just one. You know, you could go for the the cheesy answer of, you know, parents. But I think that the true answer is I've been able to interact with so many different people in my life in different countries, in different kinds of positions, whether they've been bosses, whether they've been mentors, whether they've been just people I knew in different environments, people from university, professors. I don't know if I could pick just one. I think that you take little things from lots of different people. And when I think about marketing, funnily enough, I think about it in a similar way of like, I'm very anti-big campaign, very pro lots of little things. Because I think that's how people interact with anything is lots of little interactions. But it's the truth. I think that I, I get inspired by by loads of people. I'm inspired by this conversation. You know, like it comes from everywhere. Well, let's let's go back to the cheesy answer, your mom and dad. What have you learned from your, mo- from your mom and dad? My parents inspired me from a young age that if you want to make things happen that you can yourself. I, I think I wouldn't have understood that. And I think I would have thought you have to be born into specific circumstances and things have to be added to you. And and I was taught from a very young age that that's just not true. And that if you want to make things happen, like do it yourself. It's something that I have always believed in and growing up as a kid. And now I think that being able to have that belief that you can make things happen as long as you're hardworking enough, you're scrappy enough, you're driven enough. I think that, you know, cheesy as it may be, I think you can do anything. You've landed in the right place. Yeah. You're living that lesson, right? At Trinity London. 
It's it's that kind of brand. Exactly. That is, and it is, you know, definitely a big part of what resonates with me about this brand is it's empowering. And I think that being able to connect with people on that emotional level, you know, we know the reality is science tells us decisions are not made in the neocortex. They're made in the limbic brain. And then you mm -hmm. post-rationalize it, right? So being able to connect with people on an emotional level matters greatly. That's a good way to end this. So, Shira, thank you. This was great fun. Very illuminating. Happy holidays for you and your loved ones and your company. I hope you have a great holiday season. Thanks so much for having me and happy holidays. That was my conversation with Shira Foyer. Three takeaways from this one for your business brand and life. The first one, hey, build the life you want to live. I mean, this woman is amazing. She wanted to live in London. She went into banking so she could get to London. She hated banking. She had the self-awareness to say, I don't like this. I want to be a marketer. That's what I studied in college. And she did it. She has really created the life she wants to live. And that is obvious in this interview. Second takeaway, the concept of community versus an audience. I love this and no CMO on our show has really talked about this. She talked about the difference between having a community around your brand, which is sort of self-maintaining, and having an audience, which you more proactively talk to and address. Both are important. There is, there is some overlap, but how you think about each one of them is very different. I think it's a really important concept on this show. Third takeaway, Shira is a big believer in getting inspiration from everywhere. The way she showed that belief in the early days at Trinity London was to set up a Slack channel with called simply marketing examples. And it was a lot of examples of great marketing outside their category. And that continues to this day. They seek inspiration outside the category and is one big driver for why this brand is so fast growing. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribe so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.